This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNXRadio.com studios in L.A. Today, the coronavirus tackling the NFL. At least three teams now dealing with positive cases. We've got the Chargers, the Giants, the Texans, and then there's the questions about Major League Baseball. Justin Turner, the positive test, the post-championship celebrating with the Dodgers. So we will talk about what's going on with pro sports. New research shows the virus has probably mutated in Europe. We'll get into if that's an okay thing or a really bad thing. There's an airline here in the U.S. now offering free tests, uh, cybercriminals targeting hospitals now, and people across the country have put off health screenings because of the pandemic. We're going to explore what the consequences to that are. Let's start with COVID, though, and sports. Dr. Peter Katona, clinical professor of medicine, infectious diseases at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. I talked to him along with Chris Seedens about these uh, virus cases. We're dealing with this at UCLA in terms of what, what we do with college sports as well. But it was inevitable. The question is, what do you do? Do you put people in stadiums? Do you allow sports to happen? These are very complicated, difficult questions without a clear answer. But you know you're going to have cases when this happens, and it's just a question of how many and how many complications the cases have. And I guess as positive cases continue to spike around the country, it's just more of a, if you're going to play games and you're going to move around, you have to... It's like playing football, right? You've got to try and maneuver around all of this as you're running. Yeah, I mean, it's it's every sport is different, and they have different pods and different bubbles that they put their players in. The NBA, for example, did very well without having cases, which was terrific uh, for the Lakers, for example. But it's going to vary from sport to sport, and the Dodgers were pretty good until the very end. Can't help but wonder, you know, we've got the NBA season and the NHL season, which are over now. Now Major League Baseball season is over, and it could be a quick turnaround for both the NHL and the NBA. Is that going to be the uh, the plan heading forward? Uh, leagues playing in bubbles again, choose your city, but it's going to have to be a bubble and nothing else? I suspect so, but a lot of it will depend on the trajectory of the outbreak. There's a lot of things now in the works that may make it worse and worse over the next coming weeks. And that's going to enter into the projections of what these sports teams do. Let's talk about what happened with the Dodgers and Justin Turner. Questions you still have. I'm sure there's a number of them, but here's one that a lot of people have is this was supposed to be, you know, pregame testing, but this result, the inconclusive results, and then as they sorted it out was well into the game. Um, so what is the deal with that, do you think? Well, an inconclusive result was acted upon appropriately. It's, it's what happened after the positive result came back and that he came back on the field and didn't use his mask, which was inappropriate, with the understanding that it's a very, very emotional time. It, it may be the only time in his career that this will, this will ever happen. So all of those things are, are, are of most importance, but that's really only step one. You know, step two is an apology, what the what the um, the leak does to, to, is a punitive measure and um, and what happens to testing results subsequently. And if nothing happens as a consequence of this, that could send the wrong message that it's okay to do this and there'll be nothing bad that happens. So there's a lot of implications of this that haven't really been addressed yet. Dr. Katona, are you a Dodger fan? 
Absolutely. I watched every game. Okay. I want to get into your head then. When you were watching that final game and, and the great comeback by the Dodgers, I, I, I take it you, your family members, you're on the edge of your seat, and, the, and then we learned the story about Justin Turner coming out, and you see the pictures of him you know, kissing his wife and sitting so close, right? He's sitting right next to a manager, Dave Roberts, who, who has a medical condition. <laughs> I guess I'm wondering what was going through your mind as both a medical professional and also as a Dodger fan. Well, that's a really good question. I mean, I had very mixed feelings about this. As a physician and somebody who deals with this issue, I felt this was just a horrible thing for him to do. But at the same time, as a Dodger fan, I felt that this is such a great emotional time that I understand where he was coming from, even though I very much disagreed with it. So there are two sides of this that were very much in conflict. Dr. Peter Katona, clinical professor, medicine, infectious diseases, UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks. Europe, cases shooting up, more countries doing lockdowns, there's another wave. But it might be different this time. New research shows the virus has mutated there. So what does that mean for people? Dr. Lee Riley, division head of infectious diseases and vaccinology at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. He was also on with me and Chris. We talked to him about what we look for when the virus mutates. So this is something that uh, my uh, research team is very interested in uh, looking at. And so we've been uh, following these uh, mutations that's been occurring and just all over the world. There's a large database that's called GISAID where people from all over the world deposit these uh, viral genome sequences. And so the data uh, is uh, accessible to a lot of the researchers like us. And so what's really interesting happening in Europe, uh, as well as the U.S., is that uh, these important mutations uh, uh, were actually recognized as early as in March uh, in in, uh, Europe. Uh, uh, Even uh, uh, there was a uh, uh, mutation that occurred uh, uh, back in January in China. There's a single important mutation. And then there was a second mutation that happened in that particular virus in China uh, sometime in the middle of January. And then for the first time in uh, around March, in France, there was another mutation that occurred in the third position in this virus. So what's happening now in Europe is that all three of these mutants, uh, these important mutants are circulating. So they sort of seem to be competing uh, uh, among themselves and they go up and down. And every time all three of them are co-circulating, that seems to exacerbate the epidemic. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, it, they're constantly mutating, but the mutations, you know, there are certain mutations that occur in important part, uh, parts of the virus. And, and so, um, uh, what we're seeing are these three, uh, important mutants. Uh, these, these mutants have other mutations in other parts of the virus, but the, the, these mutations that uh, I'm talking about occurred in these important well, positions in this virus. And yeah, so, yeah, mm-hmm. Dr. Riley, how serious is this mutation and new wave that we're seeing of COVID-19 in Europe? So, you know, some of us feel that the, <laughs> these are important mutations because, for instance, one of the mutations occurred in this, what everybody's been talking about, called a spike protein, which is where the uh, a lot of the vaccines are being developed against. And so, uh, and in fact, there are other uh, studies that have shown that um, it's just not just one mutation, but many mutations have already occurred in this spike protein, which means that uh, when these vaccines do come out, uh, they may not necessarily protect against all the different mutant, uh, mutants or the uh, mutations at this spike uh, protein. So this is something that we have to be really uh, uh, watch out for. 
many of these vaccines, you know, they were developed early on based on the uh, sequences that they they knew uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. But, you know, it's changing. Does, so, does that uh, lead us to the idea that maybe this is more like a flu shot thing, that every year there's a new coronavirus vaccine, at least for a while? Uh, it's certainly possible that it may get to that point. You know, we'll, we'll soon know, you know, uh, when they uh, break the, uh, the uh, I guess, the uh, uh, study results on these uh, phase three trials of the vaccines. But, you know, we're already see, uh, getting reports that uh, the uh, immune response or the antibody response to these viruses, you know, wane very quickly. And we've also seen reports of uh, reinfections in people. And so, you know, that's a lot of, uh, you know, evidence is beginning to accumulate that um, uh, these mutations may be important in in um, how we're going to develop the vaccine and that we need to be more on top of uh, how we do this. And Dr. Riley, the threat of mutation like what we're seeing now, is this something expected by medical experts like yourself right from the start or is this something you weren't expecting? No, no, of course, we, most of us expected this, especially okay. uh, viruses like this, which is uh, called the RNA virus. There are DNA viruses and RNA viruses, and RNA viruses tend to undergo mutations um, uh, relatively f- faster than the DNA mut- uh, viruses. Dr. Lee Riley there, Division Head, Infectious Diseases, Vaccinology, uh, UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks. The airlines, they're doing everything they can to keep passengers, keep crew safe from the virus. Masks required, we know that. People have their temperatures screened before they get on the plane. United Airlines, a step further now, offering free COVID tests for passengers headed to London from Newark. They're trying to make the international travel easier and make sure there's more of it. WPVM's Rob Hart talks to Joe Schweiderman, a professor of public services at DePaul University, about how this is going to work. This is noteworthy because every passenger will be expected to be tested uh, using this rapid test technology. It's uh, on Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays, and it's uh, uh, if you decide not to get tested, you'll be put on a different flight. So it's really a, a bit of a game changer in how they're approaching this, and uh, they want to make sure everybody on that flight is COVID-free, and that's, uh, that's a really new twist. Well, it, it's a new twist, but an old practice, because I couldn't help but think of the beginning of the movie Titanic, where all of the passengers had the health screening before they got on board the ship because you didn't want an epidemic to break out. Uh, and, and that's what happened 100 years ago, and now we're doing it again. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> that is a, a funny metaphor, because the uh, you know, United is trying this already uh, from San Francisco to Hawaii, but that's different, that you can bring a verified uh, a COVID test uh, within, you know, 24 hours for departure, or you can do it at the gate. And uh, that coincided with Hawaii lifting its quarantine, so everybody that lands can go enjoy Hawaii without quarantining. But uh, there's still a quarantine in uh, the U.K., so the thinking here is that if United could demonstrate that it's arriving with 100% uh, COVID-free flight uh, at the airport, no ambiguity, that makes a pretty good case that those passengers shouldn't have to quarantine in the U.K., and so they're going to be stepping up the pressure if this model works to, uh, you know, to allow that uh, exception. Every, every every day or every week, you see a, no, a new report out of the TSA that says, you know, airports across the country have screened uh, 900,000 passengers or a million passengers, that people are starting to return to the skies. How is international traffic out of the U.S. stacking up compared to domestic travel? You know, really has lagged. And we are seeing a nice recovery here domestically. I mean, we're still not even yet at 50% of the norm, but it is growing. 
And uh, you're not seeing the same thing for transit and bus travel. It's kind of unique to air travel, so that's good. But internationally, things are really pretty rough. And, of course, the second wave in in, uh, Europe is really making things a problem. And those two-week quarantine requirements are rigorously enforced uh, compared to here in the U.S. So we're not seeing that bounce back. So the airlines are getting – they're trying to throw the long ball here to show they're really – to kind of these high-tech methods to uh, to make some things change. And then very quickly, what's the expense to the airlines to uh, purchase all of these tests? You know, it is uh, appreciable. I think you're only going to see these on fairly high uh, market, high price you know, international flights, because you certainly can't justify uh, hiring a firm uh, to be at the airport, you know, at, 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 at X dollars per test, but I'm sure it's uh, at least, say, 20 bucks a test. And, yes, yeah, so you're paying a pretty good size uh, fare to go to Europe. So that's... Uh, that's where we're going to see it most. But the thinking is, you know, in a few months, if this experiment works, the airlines can make a really strong case that the European quarantining uh, could be lifted for these incoming flights. Joe Schwederman, our uh, resident expert on the airline industry based at DePaul University. After this short break, cyber criminals could be planning attacks on American hospitals. The FBI is out with a warning to hospitals across the U.S., other healthcare centers as well. Russian cyber criminal gangs might be launching ransomware attacks against their servers. They already have enough to deal with. There's a pandemic. Edward McAndrew is former federal cybercrime prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Offices for the Eastern District of Virginia. He talks to me and Chris about how concerned he is about these possible attacks. Very concerned is the answer, and the reason that is is because we've been uh, tracking this gang as it's launched ransomware attacks against many organizations uh, over the past couple of months, uh, and they are already hitting hospitals, uh, true to the warnings that were issued on Monday by the United States government. Yeah, so this is something we've seen happen before, and I guess this is just more of a large-scale attack that they're going to launch. And what is the why, or is it just money? This is ransomware. It's money for this particular group. Um, It's an Eastern European group that has a financial motive to make as much money as it can. It has found a way to take ransomware attacks to a mass scale. Uh, where the attacks are very much automated after they launch. And it's literally a matter of them simply watching money come in the door or more appropriately, Bitcoin come in the door as organizations pay uh, to decrypt their systems. What can organizations do to try and prevent this? They can pay attention to the guidance that's being uh, uh, put out by the government, which includes technical details about how the attacks occur, what to look for, sort of the digital breadcrumbs that these groups leave before the ransomware launches. Um, Those are indicators of compromise, uh, and they tell you what is about to happen on the system. So you can get ahead of this game somewhat, uh, but you have to be quick, adept, and paying attention 24-7. In an easy-to-understand way, how are they doing this at the scale that they're doing it? Because it's now past the old-fashioned, which is figure out the email tree for a company and then send a bunch of emails with a bad link in it, right? That takes time if you're doing it one by one. This is something else, as you were saying. Well, actually, it's not. It's connected. A lot of this ransomware is still distributed through phishing emails, but those phishing emails those campaigns ran weeks or months ago. So that is the lead up to the point of where the ransomware gets executed. So it's not that that tactic has changed. 
It's that we're at a different point in the attack stage where the ransomware is, is deployed and then it is launched. So they're in and they're just waiting to, to freeze everything and then ask you for money. That's right. In many instances, we now see the top accounts in organizations, the, the IT staff itself, having their accounts compromised and those accounts being used to infiltrate the network, to seed the network with the malware, and then to launch the attack. I think a lot and, of people are oh, – finish your thought. Go ahead. Sorry. And, and what we call the dwell time, the amount of time that the bad guys have been in the network before the attack launches, it can be hours, days, weeks, or months. You know, with, with technology getting stronger and stronger, we're learning so much more every year there's something new. I think a lot of people worry that is a problem like this ransomware attack is going to get much worse before it starts to get better? Unfortunately, I think yes, because we haven't figured out a way to deter it. This is international cybercrime at, at mass scale, and it is incredibly profitable right now for these threat actors. They're, they're making millions and millions of dollars per day in many instances. The losses to U.S. companies alone are in the billions uh, just this year, and this is going to continue until we figure out a way to deter the conduct. Do companies pretty much just have to pay? Because if they don't, either they can't get back into their system. This is like a total lockout, right? Or can they Not just go in? Can they delete your stuff? Is that the threat that you won't be able to, to get your info back? Well, they lock it up. They encrypt it. But if you have good backups and you have a plan ready to go, a game plan ready to go, you can rebuild your systems very quickly. You can use your backups to restore your data. You don't necessarily have to pay them. It's the, it's the organizations that really aren't prepared, don't have that game plan, and don't have good backup data that are really in a position where they consider paying these individuals. You got to spend money to, to save money, right? Prepare first, and then it won't hurt you so, so hard on the other end. All right. Correct. Ed, Edward uh, McAndrew formerly served as a federal cybercrime prosecutor, U.S. Attorney's Offices for the Eastern District of Virginia. Edward, thanks. Doctors are getting worried about the consequences of too many people missing their health care screenings because of the pandemic. Have you gone to get your checkup yet? Many are worried they could catch the virus at the office, so then they don't go. They stay home. But what if cancer cases are going undetected? How many of them are going undetected? Long-term damage of not having something like cancer found can be devastating to someone's health and their wallets, frankly. KYW's Carol McKenzie talks to U.S. News and World Report's Beverly Harzog, who battled breast cancer, explains what she's learned from the experience and how to deal with those medical bills. I'm getting regular checkups, uh, even during the pandemic. You know, I found at the beginning of the pandemic, I was um, kind of hesitant to go out and get my checkups. But it's very important for someone like me to, you know, uh, get regular checkups and, and make sure everything's okay. And honestly, right now, I feel better than I've ever felt in my life. Well, that is fantastic news. I, I have to say, when I read your story, I was shocked at really the medical hell you have been through here. It was very difficult. Uh, you know, when I first got uh, that infection, I was so sick. It was so scary. And I wasn't really thinking clearly, you know, because of the fever. But I was so fortunate that I wasn't by myself. My husband was with me, so he got me to the ER that day. And, 
you know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. <laughs> so <laughs> in this case, that that is so true. <laughs> so can you walk us through a little bit through your story here? When were you diagnosed? And, and the reason I'm asking is because mm-hmm. you really have an important message to share with women about, about what happened and the importance of getting screened. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, it's so important. And, you know, what reminded me to get a mammogram was my Facebook friends. Several of them had just recently been diagnosed with breast cancer, and they shared their stories. And I thought, hmm, you know, it's been a couple of years, actually. I hate to say that, but, you know, you get caught up in your life. Everything's going fine. You just tend to forget about preventive measures you're supposed to be taking. And so that reminded me to get checked. And I didn't go because I had found any issues. You know, I just thought, oh, time for my checkup. You know, I'm, I'm behind. And so I was shocked when, uh, you know, they, they pulled me into another room after my mammogram and said, we need to do a little more, you know, uh, you know, a little more detailed mammogram because we found something that's suspicious. But I still was optimistic. <laughs> I'm just an optimistic person by nature. And I thought, oh, well, if there's anything there, you know, I've gotten the, you know, you have dense tissue letter before. <laughs> so I figured it was something like that. So when they, you know, they told me I needed to get a biopsy, you know, I was pretty, I was pretty shocked, but I I was still optimistic it would probably be benign, but I went through with it, and that's the important thing. You have to follow up. I have a family history, so I really shouldn't have gotten so, you know, relaxed about my uh, mammograms and checkups. Uh, So especially, you know, if you're over 40, um, you know, but if you have a family history, even if you're under 40, you know, talk to your doctor about what you need to do in your specific case. And then at the end of it, now you're dealing with a mountain of medical bills. That's right. Yes. And, you know, I'm one of the fortunate ones, actually. I mean, my, my bills, you know, totaled well over $200,000. But fortunately, I had really good insurance. I still, though, had several several thousand that I had to pay uh, out-of-pocket expenses. I had an emergency fund that helped me survive that. But honestly, I still get bills. I got a bill for anesthesia a couple of weeks ago for $1,200. I'm like, what? (laughs) So uh, unfortunately, when you go through a major medical crisis like this, you know, uh, reminders of how much you still owe keep popping up and you have to be very organized and stay on top of it and talk to your insurance and make sure, you know, that they've paid all they're going to pay. And sometimes you go to um, a hospital that is in network and then Mm -hmm. you get a bill for the doctors at the hospital who are out of network. That's happened. Yes, that is so true. I mean, that is what is so tricky about insurance. And, you know, for anybody listening, it's so important, you know, even if you're in network, to check and make sure that the professionals they bring in to help you, like the anesthesiologist, make sure that they're covered also by your insurance, a part of that group, or find out how much it's going to cost you out of pocket. And this just this means you're going to have to ask your provider a lot of questions up front. And I really did not do that. If I had to go through this again, hopefully never again, but should I ever have to, you know, I would ask a lot more questions up front. I just made an assumption that my good insurance would cover just about everything except for my uh, deductible. And, you know, I was wrong about that. 
Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of people cost is a big reason that a lot of people mm-hmm. are avoiding it. And now, of course, in the middle of a pandemic, a lot of people have lost jobs. A lot of people have lost coverage. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, U.S. News and World Report, you guys did a survey, a recent survey about that. And um, mm-hmm. you found that uh, 44% of respondents have postponed seeing a doctor because of the high cost. Yes, that is correct. And, and you know, that's a very scary number, uh, particularly when you're talking about, you know, breast cancer, uh, because, you know, there's been an upward trend of breast cancer cases uh, over the years. So, I mean, this is something that you really can't put off. And I think right now we're seeing people delay, you know, because of the possible cost. And, you know, so many people have had a bad year financially because of the pandemic. Many people have lost jobs. You know, they've had their salaries cut. You know, they're really just trying to hang on. And I know, speaking as a parent, you know, if you're going to put your money anywhere, you're going to make sure your kids get care. And so I just want to encourage women everywhere to, you know, do what it takes to, you know, try to you know, uh, keep up with your checkups. We could learn soon if at least one of the vaccine candidates is working. Moderna says it's on track to report early data from a late-stage trial of its vaccine candidates next month. Moderna says after releasing the numbers, it'll file for an emergency use authorization with the FDA. It's already signed deals with the government and several other countries. It's also in talks with the World Health Organization-led group for a supply of the vaccine. Here's hoping. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you. Stay well.